Hey there, welcome to night school. You know, one of those little pop anthropology facts that people like to repeat is uh, the Inuit people have 333 words for snow. Did you know that the I don't I don't remember if it's the Inuit people, if it's the uh, if it's Eskimos. I don't know who it is. I don't know who it is, but there's this little pop. You know, it's just like it's like a little trivia fact, and you, you used to hear it all the time. Did you know that uh, the basically that these northern indigenous people have 326 words for snow? And that's really interesting. I mean, there's a reason why that sticks in people's minds. There's a reason why I still think of it all the time. <laughs> you know, that comes into my head, you know, obviously right now. But, uh, you know, it makes total sense if you're surrounded by snow. Like, if you're surrounded by snow almost all the time, you're going to develop a very nuanced take. You're going to notice very subtle differences. And especially if you're a a tribe who's lived up there forever. Did you know they didn't have social media then, so they just stared at snow? And depending on how much snow there is and the, the, the texture of the snow and how melted the snow is, the snow. Did you know that they, of course, if you're surrounded by that and you have few distractions and you're really there with the elements, you're going to develop all sorts of categories for snow. It makes total sense. If you're surrounded, if you're immersed in something, you're going to develop a very nuanced take about it. And we do it all the time with everything. And that's what's funny about when people mention that, when they're like, did you know the Inuit have uh, a thousand... In 50 words for snow. Did you know that the the northern indigenous people have a million words for snow? You know, but yeah, you're going to develop a very nuanced take if that's what you're surrounded by. And you don't have other distractions. Like, who knows if they would come up with that today? Like, who knows if modern people who live in the exact same climate, who have modern technology and other things to do, would come up with all those words for it? Who knows? But it's something we do with everything. I mean, I remember, uh, like, when I got into to metal, you know, questions people would sometimes ask would be like, how do you even know the difference between death metal and black metal and grindcore? And uh, you just, you listen to enough of it. You get interested in it. You listen to it. That's how you figure it out. You know, it's an outsider's take. Like, to an outsider, it's like, it's all snow to me, man. I don't know what these Inuit people are all about, because it's all just snow. And it's either melt. I have three categories of snow. It's falling down from the sky, it's on the ground, or it's melting. But, I mean, e- but even then, like, I live in, you know, western Washington, where we're lucky if we get one solid snowfall in the winter, most of the time, it's just a little flurry that never sticks. But even then, like, I, I know the difference between different types of snow. I can tell if it's a certain type of snow that's going to stick. I can tell if it's mixed with rain. I can tell if it's sleet. So even then, even living in a place where you don't get much snow, and I've never studied snow. Listen, I've never studied snow. It's true, though, I've never studied snow, but I still know the difference between types of snow. It's just that I have, like, three categories, whereas people who live in that, people who are surrounded by snow, have a billion words for snow. It's just going to get larger and larger. The number of words they have is just going to get larger and larger. But, but yeah, with something like music, with any interest, really, if you're an outsider or you're new to something, if something is new to you, or you're just completely unfamiliar with it, you're really, it's not going to make any difference. Because you're just like, it's all, uh, it's all Greek. You know, it's all Greek to me. It's all snow to me. It's all metal to me. Whatever it is. But the more you're immersed in something, you're, you're able to tell the difference. Like somebody who listens to a lot of metal can easily tell you the difference right away. And not only are they going to be able to tell you the difference between death metal and grindcore... They're going to be able to break those down even further. They're going to be able to tell you sub, sub, sub genres. You know, they're going to be able to really tell you if you want a specific sound, if you're interested in a specific sound, you're going to develop a language. And even if you don't 
come up with words for it, you're going to know the difference. You're going to know that this is like this, and you're going to know how to find it. You're going to know what to look for. So it's something that you do with everything. You break things down. You split hairs. And we think of splitting hairs as this totally neurotic thing. And it can be very neurotic. It often Splitting hairs often is neurotic if you get obsessed with it. And I'm sure there's somebody in among those northern indigenous people who was neurotic. I'm sure there was somebody where even though they might have had a practical use for many of those words for snow, there was probably someone among them where they were like, you're taking it a little bit far. I don't think we need an extra word for that. I don't think you need to make a distinction between these two highly similar types of snow. Like there was probably someone even among them who was neurotic. Maybe there was a lot of neuroses. I don't know. Because uh, you can even see that with categories of anything, with genres. You can see where even though there's a practical, even though language develops, you know, in a practical way, where it's like even with subgenres of music, there's a practical use. I want to, I want to be able to talk to people about this thing in a highly specific way because I care about it. Therefore, I'm going to use highly specific language. And because we need to communicate it, we're all going to adopt similar, if not the same language. We're going to use the same terms. But there are people who are completely neurotic. There are people who, with genres, will come up with just absurd subgenres to describe something. Or I think about my friend, I, my friend Paul is, he's like one of the, the biggest horror movie collectors, I think, in North America. And his attic is just filled with horror movie VHSs. And he's been he's been in like a documentary, you know. He's been in, he's been featured for these things, uh, and in his attic, though, the way that that his movies are organized, like he has little labels, like a label. He used like a label maker, and he puts a little label on the shelves to describe like which sub subgenre of horror movies are on that shelf. Like one is like aliens, another one is like Nazi horror, which is a subgenre, which you know most people who I'm not a horror movie fan, but I'm one of those people, it's weird, like all my friends are horror movie fans, a lot of them, a lot of my friends have been horror movie fans, I'm not a horror guy, I'm like Don Finucci in The Godfather, where, you know, he he's this big, treacherous, fearsome Don, and he, he's, he's watching the little puppet play on the street, they're doing this little like puppet performance, and the soldiers start fighting, and he's like, oh, this is too violent for me, and he walks away, that's me. Like, I've been into all these, like, dark things my entire life, and then, like, I watch a horror movie, and I'm just like, oh, this is, this is too violent for me. <laughs> but anyway, like, yeah, like, like you go around Paul's attic, and, and it's like you see horror movies broken down into these individual categories. Like, the Inuit people have 300 words for snow. A guy, my friend who collects horror movies, has, you know, 300 subgenres for horror movies because he owns thousands of them. You know, it's just what we do. It's what we do. And I mean, going to a bookstore, you go to a bookstore and it's like, oh, uh, this is exactly like snow. I mean, it is like if you're, you're surrounded by books and you want to be able to find what you're looking for. And, you know, and we, we just take that for granted. It's like, oh, you know, well, it makes total sense that these books are different. They're a completely different type of story, but they're all books to me, man. They're all snow to me, man. You know, you could take that same approach to it. It's all heavy metal to me, man. You could generalize everything, but it's like if you're interested in something, you want to be able to find it. You want to be able to talk about it in a specific way. Because, I mean, we've all been to those used bookstores where there's no categorization. And there's something fun about that. Just like it's fun to be like, oh, it's there's snow, Let's go play in the snow. Like when you're when you're in that mindset, you're not thinking like let's analyze the snow. In the same way when you're in the mindset just to go into, you know, a used bookstore that has just a bunch of weird books totally uncategorized. It's the same sort of mindset as playing in the snow. It's like, oh, there's a lot of this thing and all I care about is just diving in and playing in it. Because when you're in a bookstore like that, when you're in a place that doesn't categorize things, the fun is that you're not even, you don't even know what you're looking for. You're just jumping into it. And whatever happens, happens. Whatever you find, you find. 
Uh, and, and you can see where like stories are similar, you know, because that's a thing is like you could it's not just that you could say they're all books, but you could like, you know, my friend Nick sent me uh, a couple of Western like old West adventure novels and they weren't not cowboy old West, which here I am like just even saying that is a form of what I'm talking about here where it's like he sent me these old West books, old Western adventure books. And when he told me what they were, I was like, oh, he's sending me cowboy books. Oh, he's sending me cowboy books. You know, that's what I thought. And I got the books, and there's no cowboys in either one of these. But they're, without a doubt, Old West. You know, one of them is about a guy in the, in the old Oregon Territory doing a little exploring. It's not about Lewis and Clark. Trust me, I wouldn't, I wouldn't read a book about Lewis and Clark. But uh, it's, it's about a guy exploring the old Oregon Territory. And another one was about a guy who's going on a, a buffalo hunt in the Midwest. And reading those books, it's like, I, I guess, you know, they're they're so familiar to me, even though I didn't live in the 1800s. They're familiar to me because they take place in the country in which I live. And they're not that far, you know, it's not that long ago. Even though it is, even though, hey, you know what? I read these books about the old Oregon Territory. And you know, kids, that they didn't have iPhones then? You know, they didn't even have iPhones then. It's like when old people are like, did you know that uh, they didn't even have cell phones when I was growing up? It's like they didn't have cell phones when I was growing up. I've, I've mentioned that before. Like, you know, someone's old, not when they're like, I still remember when uh, Fight Club came out. You know, they're old when they don't even know that you were alive, too, before cell phones. You know what I mean? Like sometimes an old person will say that to you and you're like, you know, I'm like in my mid thirties and I was around for a long time without cell phones too. But you know, someone's old because it just all blurs. Like growing up with three channels on TV is no different to them now than just like growing up with, you know, being alive before cell phones. But anyway, uh, you know, with uh, those adventure novels, these old West adventure novels, like reading those in a way, they're fantasy books. Like, they're not that different. Like, yeah, there's no magic, but there kind of is. There's, there's, you know, they might not be as... There's no dragons. But it's like thinking about one of those books I read, like Trask. It's like, you know, near the end of the book, not to spoil it, because I know you're going to read that book. Uh, but, uh, you know, he, he basically, he's like starving on this vision quest. And he... Uh, he, he gets injured, so he has some sort of infection. And so he's hallucinating. And he's, he's carrying this dead guy, and the dead guy is talking to him. So it's supernatural, and there's no distinction. Like, even though you could, you know, put on your, your psychologist glasses and be like, well, this is going on in his mind, because th this is what happens when you have an infection, and you're starving, and you've been out in the woods for days. You start to hallucinate things that aren't happening. And even though you can kind of assume that, that that's what's going on in the book, as far as the story goes, there's a dead guy talking to him for an entire chapter or two. And that's fantasy. The rest of it's fantasy. You know, he, he's being guided by these Native Americans. And, uh, you know, it's not that different from a fantasy story. Most of our stories aren't that different. But we break them down into subcategories. Or you think about religion, you think about spirituality, where the 380 words for snow... I don't know how many words it is, okay? I don't know how many words the northern indigenous people have for snow. I don't even know actually who they are. I don't know who those peoples are. What's up with pluralizing peoples? It's already plural. People is plural. I feel like that's like a litmus test. I feel like that's a good test for me. Where if somebody says peoples, I know just to not listen to them. I feel like if you're saying peoples... I don't care what you say. The peoples. The peoples of ancient Europe. The peoples of the equator. The peoples. You know, if you say that, I just know to tune you out. You know, why not just say people? I don't, someone, I don't even want to know why people do that. And I know somebody would be able to explain it. I know somebody would have some explanation for why you sometimes say peoples and sometimes you say people. I know somebody would explain that, but I tune it out. 
I know that I don't care what you're saying if you say peoples. Stick to people. Stick to people. But anyway, uh, you know, you think about like religion and spirituality where if you study those things and you read enough about it, and I wouldn't even consider myself, I, I, I have very little expertise. Because to me, you know, I, I have a, sort of that lowercase g Gnostic approach where, uh, you know, a lot of what draws me to that is my own experience. It's experiential knowledge. And while I've studied it, while I practice it, I am drawn to certain things more than others. I'm interested in certain things. I guess, you know, certain things speak to me. So I wouldn't consider myself some like theology expert. I'm not interested in the academic side of it. I'm not interested in comparative analysis, even though the universals are something I talk about on here, even though inevitably I do compare different beliefs. And I talk about how there's certain placeholders. I mean, that's exactly what I'm getting at here, which is that you realize in that subject matter that, oh, there's a lot of different ways to talk about the same thing, even when it seems completely different. You know, someone could be like, oh, you know, someone, the same person who's like, I, how do you even tell the difference between black metal and death metal? You know, when you get a broad enough perspective, that question is no different than like, how do you even tell the difference between Christianity and Islam? And to somebody who's immersed in those things, who has a, a highly nuanced point of view about that, is going to be like, well, Christianity and Islam are just fundamentally different. They're so different, dude. They're so different. You don't know anything. But the, someone who's into heavy metal is going to say the same thing. Like, what do you mean you don't know the difference between black metal and death metal? But if you have a broad enough perspective, you're going to see a lot more parallels between them. If you're an outsider, you know, you might see... If you're, if you're looking at them objectively, I don't, I don't want to even think about, like, outsider, insider... But if you're looking at them objectively, you're going to see a lot of parallels between them. I mean, even Buddhism and Christianity is something I talk about on here. Paganism and, and, and all these things as well. You're going to realize that, oh, it's very similar to having a million and twenty words for snow. Because you realize that a lot of scripture is talking about the same thing. Especially when it comes to the experience. Well, the stories are the things that distract people. You know, the actual stories, it's like, well, no, but, like, this guy's name is Muhammad, and he did this. He was a, he was a, a, a war chief. Muhammad was a warlord. Jesus was the son of a carpenter who, who, who believed in peace. You know, the stories and, you know, the way that individual characters are rendered or figures are rendered... Like, those are going to make you think things are completely different. But when you look at the experiential side, when you look at the mystical side, these things are far more similar than they are not. But we develop many different words to describe those things, and people fight over them. I mean, I was talking to my friend a couple of weeks ago about, he was talking to me about hermeticism, and which I don't, I always forget what that is. You know, it's derived from Hermes, but... It's something I've skirted up against, I guess, but it's it's not something I've ever actually delved into. And he was talking about how, you know, hermeticism deals with kind of reconciling opposites. And I, I was like, oh, yeah, you know, that's very, you, you come across that in Zen. You come across that in Buddhism. There's a lot of reconciliation of opposites. Accepting them as they are and not seeing them as contradictions and either either reconciling them into one thing or just realizing that they're not opposed. And you know, some some Zen koans kind of deal with that, where like Zen koans will either some of them are kind of designed some of them are stupid. What's the sound of one hand clapping? That's a Zen koan. And but you can come up with your own. Your own life is filled with Zen koans. You know, all the things that you consider contradictions, all of the times where you feel like you can't find the right thread of logic in something is a Zen koan. But part of, you know, Zen practice is like reconciling opposites and realizing those things aren't actually opposed. They're working together. 
they're two teams playing on in the same game and and there is some level of agreement even though those two things are fighting they're playing the same game i mean that's war you know you think about war where it's like oh there's nothing more different than two sides fighting each other in a war and well it's like well they they're both participating in the same war which makes them one and that's why the bhagavad gita is particularly poignant because the two f- sides who are fighting are cousins of each other so they're not just participating in the same game they're also sharing a bloodline and that's not just in the bhagavad gita that's real life that's you know you study the history of england you know, it's always somebody related to somebody else trying to take the crown. You know what I mean? It's it's always something like that. Uh, so, you know, you see these. So, so like a Zen koan, though, it's like it's kind of like a reconciliation of opposites to some degree, uh, or or it's or it, it's accepting that these things that seem contradictory or these things that seem illogical, you know, they they're designed to kind of break you. They're designed to kind of break your mind where you, you, you get this relief from accepting that you no longer have to try to figure this equation out. You accept it. Basically, that's what it is. It's accepting it. It's accepting that, that you don't have to do anything with this. It's accepting that you can't necessarily comprehend this. But it's also this reconciliation. So anyway, my friend was talking to me about hermeticism and how... You know, there's this element of reconcile, reconciling opposites, which you do find in different spiritual subject matter, different practices, seemingly different. And I was I was telling him just how that you know draws up, uh, that lines up with with Buddhism in certain ways. And I mean, I love this guy. Like, but he, you know, he he was just kind of like, well, you know, I'm kind of focused on hermeticism and not really interested in getting into Buddhism. And I could see where like there was an opportunity for me to be like, no, no, no. But you need to study Buddhism now, because you're coming up with you because you found this idea on your own. You need to look at it from my point of view. You need to study it in this way. I could see where there was an opportunity for conflict. There wasn't, you know, neither, we were just exchanging ideas, we're friends, but I could see where we could basically start a religious war between each other over that, because basically we have different words for the same thing, and that itself could cause conflict, like, no, it's called this, but I call it this, no, this is my word for for this kind of snow. No, this is my word for it. You know, you could easily do that with that. And you see that with uh, any interest. You know, when I was talking about people becoming neurotic about uh, even just genres or like somebody, you know that there were arguments about snow. Like in that tribe, you know that somebody argued about whether they were looking at the same thing. They were looking at the same snow. And you know that one person said, I think it's this word. And they pulled out one of the 350 words for snow. And then you know that somebody else was like, well, I actually think it's more like this snow. And they used one of the other words and they thought about it because that's how neurotic we are. And you can see where, you know, the history of religion is very much that where it's like so often we are talking about something fundamentally similar. And even when it's not religious, I mean, something I point out a lot on this show is how the modern secular atheist liberal believes that the apocalypse is coming soon and there are going to be floods and fires and they believe that we have to repent if we have any hope of stopping it. And they think the person who is the most fundamentally opposed to them in life is this Christian, this evangelical Christian, who believes that apocalypse is imminent and it's going to result in floods and fires and we have to repent. So it's like you guys both believe something very similar. You both believe the apocalypse is imminent and that we have to do something as individuals to to make it right, basically. To make, you know, to basically do the right thing which is repenting. And it's like, 
the problem is, is that you used completely different words. You know, you know, and it's like, and you can say there's difference. You can say where like an evangelical Christian wants the apocalypse to come because it means salvation. It means flying up to heaven. You can say that, and you can say whereas you know the liberal, you know, progressive, secular atheist, they're they don't want the apocalypse to come. But yet there's a strange attraction. Like, you know, you can say that you can say that the the secular atheist who believes in climate change is different than the evangelical Christian because the secular atheist climate activist is saying like, no, we have to stop this. But yet they seem to bring it up all the time. They seem oddly attracted to it. They want to remind you of it, even though it's important. It's certainly important. But they seem they seem to get a perverse thrill out of it too. They seem to get a perverse thrill out of telling you it's going to happen. So in that way, they both seem attracted to it. And they're obsessed with it. And uh, so, so you can see, even with that, even even when you get a, you can you can take a broader view and be like, oh, religion is similar. All religions have parallels, and there's just placeholder words that distract us from the fact that they're talking about the same or similar things. And you can see where even when you get outside of the scope of religion, so-called secular atheist people develop beliefs surrounding that that actually parallel what religions deal with. You know, I've done plenty of episodes on here about eschatology and how everybody seems to have their own eschatological prophecy. And it turns out secular atheist people do too. And that's fascinating. That we all believe the end is imminent. No matter what we believe, we all seem to come to the conclusion that the world is going to end in floods and flames and plagues and all, all, all the rest, you know. And uh, we get so neurotic, though, that we just we turn it into a nonstop argument. Because if you wanted to have a healthy argument about that, like if you were a climate change activist who wanted to have a healthy argument with the people that you consider your enemy, the people who you think are climate change deniers or evangelical Christians, you would say, oh, I see that we have a similar view. You know, I see that you believe the apocalypse is coming too. The difference seems to be that I want to change my behavior to slow it down or stop it, whereas you don't seem to want to do that, assuming that's true. Because I think there's an assumption built into that that it's like, oh, evangelical Christians who believe in Revelation are looking to expedite it. Well, that describes some people. You know, there's always accelerationists. You know, I think a much healthier conversation would be like, oh, I see that we both have a prophecy involving the apocalypse. And if you can accept that, you can have a much better conversation about what to do or not do about it. I listen to Buddhists who are just like, you know, we have to accept whatever happens. And that's my own belief, where it's like, I don't want to do anything to encourage the death of the planet. I don't want to do anything to encourage pain and suffering and floods and flames. But if it's inevitable, if planets die just like we die, well, I want to, I want to be okay with that. If the universe dies like we die, as above, so below, I want to be okay with that. I don't want my knuckles to be white, gripping whatever I can grab hold of with fear. You know, I don't want to go out like that. I don't want... If, I, if I'm lucky enough to be here when the planet dies, which seems like an honor to me, you know, I don't want to be fighting it if it's inevitable. But that said, I don't want to be encouraging it. In the same way, I don't want to encourage myself to die prematurely. I don't want to be doing things that hurt me, but I want to be okay with the fact that I will die. And if you can't, if you can't understand that, you know, how are you ever going to understand all the 300 different ways to say snow in the Inuit language? 
But I mean, there is nuance to that. There is nuance to, you know, all of our feelings, you know, and you can see even just the way we describe our feelings as, as fundamentally similar. Like you look at certain ways that you react, certain ways that you feel, and you can say it's all negative. What difference does it make whether I'm sad or angry or jealous? You could say, why, you know, what, what difference does it make? Why don't I just describe them as bad feelings? But because we experience those things so much, we split hairs about them. We develop highly nuanced takes about our feelings. Even though we really could just get through life saying, good, bad. We could get through life just telling somebody, oh, I feel bad. And what difference does it make whether that's an angry bad or sad bad? What difference does it make? You're communicating to them that you're not feeling good and they should modify their behavior based on that. But the reality is, is that we spend so much time feeling certain ways. We spend so much time feeling bad that we have all these different categories for it, just like snow, just like horror movies, just like subgenres of music, just like the bookstore. And it's interesting that we tend to have more words for feeling bad than good. Like when you're happy, you just say, I'm happy, or you don't even say it. That's the wonderful thing about being happy is like, it's something that you don't even have to say because when you're happy, you are in the moment, which is why so many of these like pop, which is why like pop spirituality and new age, the reason why they've adopted that, like be here now, like Ram Dass or, you know, Eckhart Tolle, like live in the moment. The reason why that's so popular is because when you're happy, you are usually living in the moment and you're not analyzing your feeling. You're not sitting there saying, gee, I'm so happy right now. I wonder what kind of happiness this is. Would I describe it as joy? Would I describe it as elation? Am I giddy? You don't think that way when you're feeling good because you are actually in the moment, which is why they, which is why being in the moment is the goal of all of these practices of even just like the new age pop culture equivalent the reason that it's because you're no longer analyzing what you're feeling because there is a contentment or even even if it's a completely neutral feeling even if it's not happy the nice thing about feeling equanimous or neutral is that you're not even analyzing that but the thing is a lot of people do experience neutrality but they think it's bad. They're mistaken. A lot of people experience neutral feelings, but they think when they when they experience that, they they translate that to I'm bored. Or oh, I'm feeling kind of a strange I'm not what they think is I'm not happy right now. That means that I might feel bad soon. I feel neutral and that's closer to feeling bad than it is to, you know, here's a way to put it. Like, I'm feeling neutral about everything. And that means that I'm not that far away from feeling bad. Because I'm somewhere in the middle of the spectrum, that could mean that I might feel bad soon. Whereas you should think, like, that means that I also might feel happy soon. I can go up or I can go down, and it's not going to be that big of a jump, and it's not going to be that big of a fall. And if I fall down to bad, that means I can get back up to neutral. But a lot of people, when they feel bad, they're thinking, I want to feel happy. They're not thinking about feeling neutral. And they get really twisted up by thinking that way, by thinking, when they feel bad, thinking I should feel happy. When, If you're feeling truly bad and you suddenly feel neutral, you feel great. Neutrality becomes highly desirable. And so setting that as some kind of goal is really the way to go, and not just setting that as a goal in the immediate, like, I'm feeling bad, I'd like to feel neutral, thinking, I'd rather just sit at neutral, because that way I'm never, get, you know, I'm not going from one high to one low, it's not feast or famine, because that's what happens when your entire point of view is based around, I'm either feeling good or I'm feeling bad, is that you swing from one to the other, and you usually rest on the bottom, But just to go back to, you know, what I was getting at a minute ago, you know, the idea that 
we have so many different words for feeling bad and we analyze them. Like when we're feeling bad, we sit there and we think, well, not only like what version of bad is this, but why am I feeling bad? What did my parents do to make me feel bad right now? What did my parents do 30 years ago? that made me feel bad right now. You know, people get sick about it. That's sick. That's my, my word. I'm just, I, I, that's just my thing now. I just call things sick. It is, though. It is sick. And, you know, Carl Jung talked about that with, like, talking about how there's two, basically there's two different types of people, you know. <laughs> the old, like, there's two different types of people. Uh, but he, in one of his books, he did say that, I was reading it, and it, it's, it, it hit, very close to home because it reminded me of a situation that I'm familiar with where he talks about how some people just accept that their parents are human beings and they understand that that has a spectrum from good to bad. And then he was talking about how some people, no matter how old they get, they continue to see their parents as these looming figures. They see them for their role. And because they see them for their role, they continue to be scared or upset, and they continue to see their parents all, often as a source of their problems, even long after their parents are gone. And when he said, he didn't say that those specific words, but that's what he was getting at. He was talking about how some people, you know, it might, some of it might be natural, but it's like some people can just understand who and what their parents are, and not even see them as parents, not even see them for that specific role. They don't see them as these looming figures, they see them as people. They see them as peers in a strange way. And guess what? They are. You're, no, matter, no matter what your parents did or what, how they raised you, they are your peers. They are your family. You know, your family are your peers in many ways. Um, and uh, I don't mean to go off on the whole, like, people blaming their parents for all their problems. But there is this real, like, anti piety like not only should you not uh, treat your parents well not not only should you not serve your parents but you should hate them for all your problems throughout the rest of your life but I, i'm just bringing that up because it's like when when people feel bad they they don't not only subcategorize that bad feeling but they analyze every little thing that's ever happened in their life and how it contributes to why they feel bad they diagnose themselves if you feel bad enough, you come up with words to describe why you feel bad all the time, which is, you know, an ism, basically. It's basically an ideology. You know, you think about, like, I, I mean, psychology is very much a an ideology. You know, it, it's it's like, it's a way that you're viewing the world that isn't necessarily the truth, you know, it, but it is a point of view. It's like, I don't know, this sounds silly. Psychology is an ideology. It is, though, in many ways, and that's why I've kind of gotten away from it. It's why I don't diagnose people. And you can see that it's become a belief system. I mean, that's what I'm getting at, is that psychology is a belief system where, you know, if you feel bad enough, you call it this, and now you are that. If you feel bad enough in this very specific way, you're bipolar. If you feel bad enough in this very specific way, you're schizophrenic, you're depressed. And while those words are useful, I don't think that you should have a, a belief system built around that. And how is that different than having a million different words for snow? How is having all these different diagnoses any different than having a bunch of different words for snow? It's useful. Having different words for snow is practical and useful if you live in a place where you're surrounded by snow all the time and the different types of snow require you to do different things based on what type of snow that is. That makes sense. There's a practical reason to have different words for snow. Just like there's a practical function to psychology, psychology as a tool, psychology as a method of understanding the human mind and especially its problems. Where it's like, we can use this as a tool. A diagnosis should only be a tool. But people get attached to that. 
because they can say, oh, I have problems because of this. And I'm not saying you should reject a diagnosis. I'm not saying you shouldn't go to a psychologist. But psychology shouldn't be an ideology or a belief system. It should be simply a tool. Right now, in the time in which we live, we can refer to specific problems in this specific way and deal with them in a certain way. But they're placeholder words. They're based on our understanding right now. And we shouldn't be too attached to those things. We shouldn't believe that this is who people are. We should not believe that these categories, these diagnoses, are who these people are. Because if we tell them that, they will become attached to it. Like in the same way that some people get attached to the idea that your parents are in this role, and you're looking at them, you're analyzing them, not based on who they are as people, as peoples, <laughs> your parents are peoples. Uh, no, you're, and you're analyzing them not based on who they are, but based on this role that you have in your mind. Like, how would you respond to your parents if you were never told that they were your parents? They did all the things that parents do, good and bad, but what if you were never told that that is a role? What if you were never told that that is a category of people? What if you were never told that being borderline is a category of person. You were still given the tools to deal with that, whether it's medication, whether, I don't know, I don't know how you deal with that. I don't know, I don't, I don't know how you deal with these things. But, you know, instead of being told you are that thing, what if you were never told that? You were never told that that's a role, that that's a, an identity, that that's a category, but you were still given the tools to deal with that thing. It would probably help you. But that said, I understand why we come up with the categories. I understand why we come up with these words. I completely understand it. But you shouldn't form your worldview based around that. But we live in a time where that's extremely popular, where psychology has become a belief system. Science has become a belief system. And I mean, I I do feel similarly about religion, too, where it's like people are attached to these words and these categories... And uh, a conversation that I never have, even with people I like, like when they ask me, like, what version of the Bible are you reading? Like, oh, is it this? Is it this translation? And I say, I don't care. I read, I, you know, when I first read the Bible, it was a version that I found in a like a lending li- neighborhood lending library. Like when you're walking down the street and somebody has like a little dollhouse, you know, filled with books. Somebody had the Bible in there, and I was like, you know what? It's time to read the Bible. And then when I was done with it, I put it back in in a different lending library, or maybe the same one. I don't remember which lending library I put it in. But, you know, I don't know if that was the same version of the Bible that I'm reading right now. My mom's, my mom's old copy. I don't think it is. There's differences. There's obvious differences that I remember. Because it's like, this word is different. But I'm not interested in analyzing that. I don't want to be neurotic about that. And I don't think it's necessarily neurotic to care about that. But I don't care about it, and it feels neurotic for me to care about it. In the same way that people get neurotic about snow. People get neurotic about mental health diagnoses. People get neurotic about the thing that is supposed to help them with their neuroses. And I understand like some people would tell you, oh, neurosis is, a, is an antiquated term. We have different words for it now, which should tell you something right there. The fact that neurosis was the word of the day decades ago. And now we say, well, neurosis doesn't really describe the thing we're talking about. Yes, it does. You might have come up with other ways of, of interpreting it. You might have come up with better tools. I'm not even saying that that's the best way to refer to it. The word neurosis speaks to me. I like to use that word. If I'm talking about my own issues, which don't even feel like issues anymore, but if I'm talking about my own issues, I would say sometimes I'm a little bit neurotic. That's a word that works for me. But it's funny how, like, that is a a word that's become antiquated. Like, you won't hear anybody, I mean, you will, but, like, you won't hear 
cutting-edge psychologists use that word much anymore. It's considered kind of antiquated. It's, it's actually, it even has socio-political connotations. Of course, because we're neurotic about everything. <laughs> we're even neurotic about the word neurosis. But, uh, you know, that, just, that should show you something right there, the fact that that can be the word of the day. And then now it's not. But yet it's referring to something that's been there all along. You know, it doesn't matter if you call it snow. It's going to be there in the same way. That snow is going to be there no matter what the word is that you have for it. If you generalize, if you live in a place that doesn't get much snow and you just call it snow, you don't have any nuance to how you describe it, that doesn't change what it is. Just because a tribe who lives in a completely snow-covered place most of the year, just because they have a sub-sub-sub-sub-category to describe the consistency of the snow on a given day, depending on the time of year, doesn't mean that that snow is any different than the snow that you experience in a place that doesn't have much snow and that you just call snow. It doesn't, you know, it doesn't change the thing that's there. You know, it just, it's something to remember. And we get so caught up in those things. And I mean, I think experimental music was very informative to me in that way, where when I first got interested in experimental music, I was a teenager, and I just thought, like, I'm going to check out experimental noise music. And you get into that, and you're like, oh, wait, well, this is... This is old school industrial. Oh, this is power electronics. This is electroacoustic. This is ambient. This is harsh noise. This is dark ambient slash noise. This is death industrial. This is free jazz improv. This is laptop noise. This is analog noise. This is music concrete which actually predates noise as a genre. Yet it's noise. It's people making music, it's making sound, recording sound using noises that are not what we typically associate with music. It's proto-noise. You know, that was telling to me where it's like, oh, even this thing that I I thought didn't really have any subcategories, turns out it has as many as everything else. Of course it does. Because if you spend your time surrounded by experimental music, people are going to have different approaches, and those different approaches need to be described a certain way. And when it comes to taste, you're going to be looking for those things or trying to avoid those things. That's the thing about subcategories, is that they're there to help you find things as much as they're there to help you avoid things. Be like, oh... Oh, so you said that's power electronics? Oh, well, I know to stay away from that. I know to, I know to stay away from that. Oh, but this is uh, junk noise? Oh, I, thank goodness you told me. I'm going to buy it. I'm going to listen to it. And so in that way, in that way, kids, snow is no different than experimental music. It's not. As far as our language goes, I wish my voice cracked more. It almost cracked there, not quite. Uh, but uh, we have a we have 250 words for the different ways in which a boy's voice cracks. No, but that's just one of the interesting things about being a human being is we have all these different words, and the more that you're immersed and surrounded by a given thing, the more nuance you're going to have, the more you're going to analyze it, and some of that an- analysis has a function. Some of that analysis is helpful. It helps you find the things you want, avoid things that you don't want. It helps you deal with that thing in certain ways. Although going back to the snow thing, like how practical are these different words? You know, because yeah, like different types of snow will cause you to do things in a different way. You'll react to it in a different way. But, I mean, how practical is it? 
How much of that is just living in a time and place where you don't have many distractions and you're surrounded by snow, therefore you come up with as many different ways to describe it as possible? Like how many different ways can you actually respond and react in a practical way to the different types of snow? You know, and, and that's sort of like the, the mental health thing as well, where it's like, how much of this is truly practical? A lot of it is. You know, there's a lot there's a lot going on in, you know, the world of mental health that is practical because it's designed to help you. But is all of it, you know, because, again, we sometimes we're just bored. Sometimes we're, we are just neurotic. So it's important to consider those things. Sometimes that's how I feel when someone's like, well, what, which translation of, of the Bible are you reading? And it's like, I'm reading the Bible. And it's not that a translation isn't important. It's just that that's not important to me right now. And to emphasize that would actually distract me from what I'm experiencing. It would be like me trying to analyze my bad mood. Because when I'm reading the Bible, I'm neutral or maybe even more than neutral. And when I'm feeling that way, I'm hopefully in the moment. Therefore, I don't need to break it down. Because, I mean, I, I don't know if anybody's like me in this way, but sometimes I'll be experiencing something joyous and I'm with somebody and they'll turn to me and they'll be like, isn't this awesome? And I just think, yeah, but it's it's more awesome to not say that it's awesome. Because that sort of breaks the wall. Like when you're experiencing something good, there's this invisible wall. And when someone says... You know, maybe they, maybe it doesn't break the wall when someone says, isn't this awesome? You know, it's almost like it makes you aware of the wall. You know, it, it, it's like I was trying to think of like breaking the, the fourth wall, whatever it is people say when someone on a show talks to the, the viewer. It's almost like that, but it's almost like making you aware of the fact that, oh, now I know what I'm feeling. I was in the moment, and I was feeling good in that moment, and I wasn't thinking about the fact that I was feeling good, because when I feel good, I don't think about the fact that I'm feeling good, and by you turning to me and saying, isn't this awesome, you know, it, it suddenly made me aware of that invisible wall. It made me aware of the fact that this is a, a finite feeling. But that said, it's fun to acknowledge things when they're good. It's just that we have such a negativity bias, and when something is affecting us negatively, we want to comment on it. We want to vent, but that's addictive, and sometimes that just reinforces the bad thing. But I do, just on a gut level, sometimes I do get annoyed. It's funny, like where I'm feeling great, and someone just turning to me and says, don't you just feel great? Doesn't this just, isn't this just awesome? You know, sometimes that... (laughs) actually makes me feel not awesome and you can't and that's my own neuroses too you know it's my own neurosis where it's like yeah I shouldn't feel that way but yet sometimes acknowledging a good feeling takes you away from that good feeling it's like being in a flow state and saying I'm in a flow state is a good way of disrupting that flow state just like saying Oh, you know what type of snow this is? This is, you know, sleet mixed with rain mixed with the thick snow. I can tell what the air's like. Sometimes saying that makes the snow hard to enjoy. Sometimes that makes the snow hard to enjoy when I just want to enjoy the snow. But yet I am an analytical person by nature. Obviously, I mean, listen to this freaking show. This is this is a show. This this isn't even a show. This is just like nonstop psychic dissection. You know what I mean? It's it's just obviously this is an outlet for these things for me because it allows me to do the thing that's interesting about this show for me is it allows me to do less of what I'm doing right now when I'm not doing this. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's a, it's a real outlet for this way of thinking where it's like oh by doing a podcast like this. I don't have to think like this when I'm not doing this. Even though I inevitably do, which feeds into doing this, I still, I I can think like this less when I'm not doing this because I have a very specific outlet for this. 
And so it's nice in that way. But, uh, you know, it's just funny to me that we do what that tribe does. That tribe has so many different words for snow, and we do that about everything. And we don't think about how similar we are to that. We don't think about the ways in which we do that in our own lives, with our own interests, in the place in which we live. You know, we have, we have 300 different words for store. Is it a grocery store? Is it a corner store? Is it a bodega? We have, we have 500 words for places to get food. It's like, oh, it's meat? They're gonna, I'm going to go there and I'm going to get meat? Probably some sort of carbohydrate, some kind of vegetable with some kind of sauce. Is it Indian food? Is it Mexican food? Is it Italian food? Is it Chinese food? Is it American food? Is it an, is it an English breakfast? You know, that's a form of it. I know that I'm going to go to a place, I'm going to pick a restaurant, and unless it's a vegetarian restaurant, chances are I'm going to get something with meat and a vegetable and a sauce. But we also like what we like, and that gets back to taste. You know, it gets back to taste where it's like we need words to guide our taste. To find what we like, what we prefer. And so in that way, these things are important to us. It's not wrong to do this. It's just good to be aware of it. It's good to be aware of it. And that's what all this comes back to. It's awareness. The reason why people have 10 million billion trillion words for snow in certain parts of the world is because they're so aware of snow. And being around snow all the time expands that awareness. It allows them to be aware of smaller details, smaller differences and distinctions. My friend who has the horror movie collection, his attic is filled with horror movies, thousands. I think he has thousands of horror movies up there. The reason why he has little labels on each shelf is because he's just immersed in horror movies. And he wants a way of categorizing them. Because he is so aware of horror movies that he is aware of every little detail and nuance, the things that make them different, the things that make them similar. The reason why somebody who listens to experimental music can hear, not just tell you about it, it's not like they're making this up, but they can actually hear, you know, a minute of, of a recorded track and tell you exactly where that fits into this world of experimental music that to everybody else is just non-music, noise, Yet they can tell you exactly what that is, chances. Chances are they can tell you exactly what that is the second they hear it. Because they're so aware of experimental music. The reason why somebody who's developed this like fetish for psychology, where they've developed this belief system around modern psychology, is because they are so aware of all of the bad feelings people have. And how to categorize them, and how to deal with them, and how to medicate them. You know, so it's like they are so aware of negative mental states that they have come up with all these different words for it. And the funny thing is, is that we do it less with things we truly enjoy. Even though our taste is guided by this, when we are in that moment enjoying something we are not thinking about these categories. Even if it is something that, like, like let's say you found a band because you were looking in a certain direction because you knew a certain term for that style of music and the subgenre that they fell into. When you're actually listening to that and appreciating it, you're not thinking, this is so awesome because it's that cat- in that category. Like, you're not sitting there thinking, this is so awesome because of the fact that it's technical death metal. If you're actually truly appreciating what that thing is, being reminded that it falls into a certain category actually takes you out of that moment of appreciation a little bit. 
And that's the difference between liking the idea of something versus actually liking something. Is that it doesn't make a difference in that moment whether it's technical death metal or not. You're appreciating it for exactly what it is as this bizarre form of human expression that somehow speaks to you in the time in which you live. And even though what helped you find it is this category, that was just a tool to bring you to that moment. So you have to think of all these things that way. Think in terms of tools. Don't get too attached to the idea. Don't get too attached to the word. Because all of these things should just bring you to that moment when you feel like you're inhabiting your body, you're inhabiting this world, and you're enjoying something else that inhabits this world with you. 300 words for snow. This land is mine God gave this land to me This brave, this golden land to me And when the morning sun Reveals her hills and plains I see a land where children 